All right, we are live. So hello, welcome everyone to the May 2019 hashtag Exchange SA broadcast. Um, this is going to be on academia as a PT career. Uh, my name is Kyle Stapleton. I'm the Director of Communications of uh, the APTA Student Assembly Board of Directors. Um, and we're joined by Chris Petrosino. He's a physical therapist and the nominating committee chair of the APTA. And he's also the chair of physical therapy and human movement science at Sacred Heart University. So Chris, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, you're welcome. Good evening, everyone. Awesome. So if you haven't been part of an Exchange SA chat before, um, you can interact on Facebook Live. And there's also a Twitter conversation happening right now as well. All you have to do is just follow the hashtag, hashtag Exchange SA, and the conversation will be um, right in the queue for you. Um, so just some, some beginning announcements um, just, to, just to start off here. So APT, APTA Next is almost here. It's June 12th to June 15th. Um, we're switching it up this time a little bit. So our general membership meeting will be Thursday, June 13th from 8.30 a.m. to 10 a.m. So it'll essentially be a networking breakfast, and our GMM presentation will, will follow the networking breakfast. Um, so all students who are attending next, um, we would love to have you come out. We'd love to, ha we'd love to have you there. Um, it'll also be streamed on Facebook Live. So if you're unable to make it or you're just not attending next, um, it'll be on Facebook Live uh, for you all to look at and to watch. Also, Conference Connections is back, so we're really happy about that. If you're a PT or PTA student attending APTA Next, this is an awesome way to meet students, network with students, um, just pretty much to stay updated on all the, the certain initiatives and certain things that are happening there. So I think one of our board members will be posting that link in the comments. So if you haven't signed up for that yet, you can definitely do that right there. Also, a really big announcement we're all really happy for is the Student Assembly Board of Director applications will be going live very soon on June 1st through APTA Engage. Um, so someone can also put a link down there in the comments for that. Um, but once that once that goes live and, and that link goes live, we'll send it out on our, our social media accounts on our Facebook and our Twitter, and you'll be able to apply through there. Um, so stay tuned on that, and uh, we're really excited about that. And just uh, generally, generally just be on the lookout for social media updates and interviews happening throughout APTA Next um, there'll be plenty of interviews and also conversations that you should definitely be following. Um, we're going to have some awesome clinicians and students coming on um, for things that you definitely do not, do not want to miss. So very happy about that. And as always, we're looking for Pulse contributors. So if you want any information, you can talk to, contact myself at aptasa.doc at gmail.com, or you could also email pulse at apta.org. We're always looking for um, submissions and contributors, so we'd love to have you submit if you can. And also big announcement, mark your calendars for the next hashtag exchange SA. This is the first announcement of it. It'll be Sunday, June 9th, so two weeks from right now at 7 p.m. Eastern time. And it's going to be with Jimmy McKay. So Jimmy McKay is a physical therapist. Uh, he's the creator of the founder of PT Pinecast and is also the director of communications of Fox Rehab. And we're going to be talking about building your professional brand. So definitely um, a chat that you definitely don't want to miss. Um, so really looking forward to that. So if you're joining us tonight, um, we'd love to have you contribute. We'd love to ask you to ask some questions in the comment. Um, Chris will be very happy to answer all of them. Um, shout out your name, your, your year, and your school. If you're a DPT student, a PTA student, a fresh PT, or anyone else who's joining us, we'd love to have you shout yourself out in the comments um, and ask any questions that you may have. Um, so we're really excited to kick it off. Awesome. So, so Chris, could you give us just like a little bit of uh, you know background of your career in academia, how you got there, and... Um, kind of where you are today. Oh, that's, that's great. Uh, you know, a lot of times individuals, when you're in PT school, you have sort of an affinity towards one area or another. I always like neuro. 
believe it or not, never worked in neuro in my life, which is crazy because your career and your life takes you into different places. But I started out when I, I graduated, it was 1990. And um, there was typically, everybody went into acute care hospitals because you saw a wide variety of patients. So I started there. But within six months, I was running an outpatient physical therapy program at the hospital. And then with before the year was over, I had individuals from another hospital, a sister hospital, come to me and say, what do you know about industrial physical therapy? I said, well, I did a six-week clinical in it, and they said, you know more than we do. <laughs> so could you write this request for proposal from a local steel mill, which was a steel mill in the upper Ohio Valley, which was between – they had about uh, four finishing plants and a lot of foundry plants in Ohio, West Virginia, and Pennsylvania. So I wrote the proposal and not knowing much, I got back in contact with my university. I got contact with other universities around the area and asked them, what do you do for an industrial physical therapy program in industrial medicine? So I wrote that portion of it in the rehab services of it and it got accepted and ended up being in industrial physical therapy for the next six years or so. So that was my, my hands-on experience with, um, with PT is mostly orthopedics, but I was in coal mines. I was up in, in steel mills on top of cranes on top in uh, six feet or six feet, um, about three miles underground wow. before with the, the, in the coal mines and things of that sort. So it was a really interesting experience doing a lot of ergonomics and worksite evaluation, but I always kept a contact with the university that I graduated from and stayed on an alumni board there. Ended up being the president of the alumni board. And every time I went back, the dean would say, when are you going to come back and teach for us? And I was just jokingly, I was I would go, well, you know, I'm not sure. And kind of bounce that around a little bit. And then some things were going on in the steel mills, as you probably know. There were some challenges. And I knew of a pending strike. And I really didn't want to get locked in the steel mills for <laughs> a time. And my life had changed a bit. So I went back one time for a meeting. And I said, what do you got for me? Right. So that's sort of how it started to transition. And I started into an academic career. And I think that's how some others, they have an interest in it. I've always enjoyed um, doing the, the preventative medicine piece and speaking on top of trucks and down in pits and educating the, uh, the clients and the, the patients that we had. And I always thought afterwards, oh, this would be great to teach students too to take that beyond just teaching patients or teaching large groups of individual and preventative, but to actually get into some of the core content areas and, and teach those. So when I went uh, back into academics, I started as a lab instructor clinician. So I was in the labs and part-time in the hospital system there, but uh, bouncing back and forth and doing lab work as well as being a clinician and bringing that information back to the classroom for them. So that's sort of how it all transitioned. Uh, I didn't expect to be doing that type of thing. I, I um, always had a love for learning and it started to take me into that direction. And um, I think that's, that's where I ended up. And I just kept, people kept asking me, well, you know, would you consider a director's position? Well, okay. Then I ended up <laughs> as a director. And then, um, well, actually before that I was a DCE which they used to call right. ACC, Academic Coordinator of Clinical Education, before as a Director of Clinical Education. And I, I ended up there before I became a director. Then I went to a dean position in graduate studies, and I went to associate provost. Wow. And then I, I came back to what I loved, which is directing programs and being with faculty and being with students. So I'm back here at Sacred Heart University, loving every minute of it. 
Absolutely. And we'd love to have you at Sacred Heart University as well. I always love hearing that story because I think it's just so cool, all the different niches of physical therapy that you can go in. I know I don't really commonly hear of industrial physical therapy as a niche. So your story is actually the first one that I heard of that. So I think that was just, you know, super amazing to hear. And I think it's also kind of cool to see the flexibility of the, just the profession in general. You were kind of interested in neuro and then you you know, winds it up to do orthopedics in the in industrial setting. And then you transitioned into the APTA nominee committee chair, of course, and also the chair um, at Sacred Heart University. So it's kind of cool how it's, you know, there's no set pathway uh, for you to go in physical therapy. You can kind of transition and go throughout um, as you please. So it's really, uh, it's really cool to see that. Well, your careers as PTs, PTAs will give you a skill set that's really transferable to a lot of different realms and a lot of is leadership, communication, networking, um, and you get that directly with your patients. You get that sort of perspective of how to problem solve and how to critically think through problems, which kind of lends to every aspect of your life, and it's easy to transition from one area to another. Awesome. Absolutely. Um, so I guess we'll just start out with some questions. So if you, any students who are, who are tuning in, any students, clinicians who are tuning in, please, if you have any questions for Chris, um, just throw them down in the comments. And we'll put them right in the queue and we'll be able to ask them live. Um, so we'll just start out. Um, so can you describe the, the, the different types of faculty positions in academia? Um, like the, their similarities and differences, like, you know, clinical assistant professor, clinical so associate professor, et cetera. Mm -hmm. There's typically, there's three ranks. There's a assistant, associate, and full professor. And those are the traditional ranks as uh, in the acad academics. Um, when you're called an academic professor and going through those ranks, it's, it's a, one that's on a tenure track typically, meaning that tenure is a way that you typically about six years or so to reach tenure. And it's building in three areas of teaching, scholarship, and service. And those different ranks, you move through those at different points in time, and we can get into that a little bit, but we'll kind of jump back to the different positions first. So those are, that's the traditional academic realms that you go from, from assistant to associate to full professor, but they developed um, clinical professor also, which has the same type of ranks. So you have a clinical assistant, clinical associate, and, and clinical full professor, but you're, it's not necessarily an um, academic track, which considers more the research components in academics. It's more of a clinical track that you're talking about skill sets and the things that you're bringing to the classroom. So it's more of a teaching position. Um, other disciplines may have tracks that are called professional tracks, like in business, but they have the same ranks, too, of assistant associate and full professor as a professional track, but they're mostly teaching-oriented, or as in business, they, they help develop um, partnerships and different things like that in the business realm. Uh, but for the most part, it, it kind of breaks up the duties a bit more, and it's, it's the level of emphasis on what type of um, role that you have in the university within your academic rank. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And I know kind of one of the follow-up questions from that was, you know, so we were talking about tenure and non-tenure track. Um, what are the requirements for the positions that um, have to do with research? So what do what those requirements look like? How much research do you have to do as a, you know, a professor who's looking to, to get tenure? Mm -hmm. It varies based on the institution. So if you're talking about a research one institution, it's very heavily loaded, just not on the research, but the grants that you bring in. And they will have criteria for you to move from assistant to associate and from associate to full professor. Typically, I'd mentioned before the tenure track 
is usually about a six-year track. So at the third year, you're doing a pre-tenure review, and then at the fifth year, you're applying, and you go into tenure at the sixth year. That's typically all assistant professor. And then when you get some tie promotion and tenure together, so you can get tenured at that sixth year, and you get promoted to associate professor within that. But as I had mentioned, um, Research One institutions have a very heavily weighted area of, of research content that you need to actually produce um, literature and, and actually get into journals and do grant writing and those types of things. Uh, whereas the teaching institution, it may not be as heavily emphasized in that, but you will have to produce. And anybody in a CAPTI accredited PT program will have to produce research no matter if you're clinical track or academic track faculty. So you'll have to be engaged with the literature and actually contributing in some way to research. Uh, the qualifications to get into a tenure track position, typically you need a terminal academic degree, which means in the past it's a PhD, which is sort of the, the one that people shoot for because that's a scientist degree, the doctor of philosophy, but you also have um, the EDDs or the the, there's doctorates in physical therapy, there's science doctorate degrees, but they're considered terminal academic degrees. Um, it's not necessarily a DPT or even an MD or a JD. Those are more clinical degrees. So those would not necessarily uh, allow you to go into an academic position, but it would be the preparation to get into a clinical position if you have a professional degree. And you typically in those clinical positions, you have to have the degree that is being offered. So you should have a DPT if you're going to teach in a DPT program. Yeah, absolutely. And that totally makes sense. If you have a EDD or a PhD, you need to kind of have those degrees. You need to be able to um, develop those in order to, to teach, you know, like, like you were saying, uh, an academic, uh, you know, track. So that, so that kind of makes sense. And I think that was kind of, it, it was good to kind of clarify that because I feel like maybe not many, many people are familiar with that. So I think that was good to clarify. So Kind of just jumping off of that a little bit, um, what are the requirements for, for students who may be looking to pursue a career in academia? I know we kind of briefly talked about it, but how should students actually seek out these opportunities? You know, stay engaged with the university you're in, or if you move to a different area, uh, be willing to come in and do guest lectures or speak, or um, we run a problem-based curriculum at Sacred Heart, so they come in and, and do tutorials. Uh, but there's a lot of opportunities for adjunct work. So it gives you the teaching experience. It's always nice to be engaged with a, an academic program and show your interest that you're interested in being in an academic setting. Uh, but then you can go into those areas of your interest and sometimes you can actually through that and understanding that what those needs are within different universities, you can say, okay, well, my interest is in orthopedics. So what type of orthopedics is missing in a curriculum and how can I gear myself and not just that curriculum, but curriculum across the country that may need certain types of individuals to make yourself more marketable. So you can find a niche potentially in those areas. Um, you know, one of the things that I did, I was more of a generalist when I came in, but I had an industrial PT background and coming in as a clinician lab instructor. So I came in in a position that actually allowed me to develop into different areas. And through that, I became an ACC, which is mm -hmm. a clinical placement person. And I transitioned through there and the university paid for all my degrees. Wow, that's amazing. So I came out without any debt pretty much because I ended up with a master's and then a PhD that was paid for by the university. And a lot of universities want to increase the education levels of their employees. 
So if you get into those areas, they will give you, there's usually a time requirement afterwards. So if they pay you so much to get your degrees or they allow you to get your degrees at that institution, they will allow you to, to or they want you to work a certain amount of time afterwards um, because they are pretty much supporting you financially to do that. So there's opportunities like that. If you're interested in teaching, um, you know, my my first thing is a lot of times I, I see individuals after about, five years or so, because you need to get your feet on the ground, get out there and practice. You're not really comfortable in the clinics until after you've been there for at least two years or so, two to three years, you start to say, okay, I've seen this. I understand it. My clinical decision-making is coming in there. Then you can start to vet whether or not um, you want to move into academic positions. Uh, A lot of times I see individuals coming in as uh, clinical in clinical positions. They've been out for five years or longer. Right. Yes, that's not a given. I mean, you can jump in there sooner, and I've seen that happen too. But typically, five years or longer, individuals are looking at getting engaged in some academic setting. And that doesn't mean you don't keep engaged with the university from the time you graduate and continue. It just means that those are the times when you start to look for some employment in those settings. Because you're going to be in competition with others too that have been out there somewhat in uh, looking at those positions, even clinical or academic. Right. So like even jumping off of that, like, what do you see the divide is um, between students coming right out of school knowing that they want a, a career in academia versus, you know, students who you know, work as a, as a clinician for a certain amount of time and then search, um, search out attaining a Ph.D. or an EDD and then going into academics. So in your career, like what do you see the divide is there? Do you see more people working in a clinic as a clinician for an extended period of time and then um, jumping into academia? You know, it, it's widely varied. And I think the best thing is to take it in the realm of passion. So when is the passion developed for that type of thing? And I see some older individuals coming in because they've got the experience and they they grow and they say, oh, I want to contribute back now in some way. I got this experience. I want to contribute back to the students. And they move into those realms, whereas the younger is just they're they're hot for knowledge, right? You want to keep that growing and that interest and they just got the love of learning and they start staying into the academic realms. So they start earlier. So the divide when you're talking about the individuals coming in, I think you get a mix in every area. I think it's probably more those career individuals that had that burn in them early on. And then they, you know, after about, um, uh, and I said about five years or so when they feel comfortable in the clinics and they know they can contribute and they feel confident enough to get into the classroom setting, they'll jump in. So it's, it's kind of a mix. I, I'm not answering your question very directly because I'm not sure what that percentage would be or how that would work out because I've seen all different, different right. types of individuals coming in. Yeah, and that, and that totally makes sense. I mean, people develop their passions at, at totally different stages of their career, whether it be early, middle, or late stage career. It's all about, like you said, it's all about find, um, you know following your passion. So whether it's earlier, you know, mid or later. So I think I think it's good when you have individuals kind of coming in from all you know areas of the spectrum, whether it's you know earlier in their career or later in their career, because they definitely bring you know different tools and experiences based on you know their level of expertise or just their level of experience. You know, everybody has a talent and something to offer. And that's the thing. Your individual knowledge, no matter who you are, you bring that to the table when you when you interview, you bring it to the table when you talk to students. Um, I think that's something that you don't second guess yourself of what your experience has been. Uh, you always hear the, the somebody say, do you have one year of experience 20 times over or 20 years of experience, right? Or right. one year experience, five years over, things like that. If you have a love of learning, it's going to show. And that passion is going to show 
in interviews. But don't let it discourage you, too, if you don't get that first role that you're trying to get into in academics. And there's a lot of things that people look for. Even at, if you've been in academics, sometimes it's difficult knowing the, the, the different types of individuals that are interviewing for jobs. Um, it, it's a challenging field out there, but uh, the more connections and the networking that you have, the more opportunities you're going to see. Right. Your way too. Absolutely. And I think that, you know, it's good for all the students out there to know that it's okay for your passions to change. I know just briefly, and your passions can change when you're a student and also when you're a clinician. Um, I know my passions change from, you know, first year of physical therapy school. I'm, I'm really focused on my grades. And obviously, that's still my number one priority. But, you know, you got to kind of move outside of the box and, and develop some other passions. So the passion I developed was just the student assembly. So I, I always felt very engaged with the student assembly, and I developed that passion early. So I think that's something that I'm definitely going to keep um, for the rest of my life. But I think as I, you know, transition into a clinician, to a into an early career professional, those passions are also going to to branch out a little bit. I'm definitely, and I, everyone else is going to become passionate about different things in in the profession, whether it be orthopedics, um, you know, neurology, industrial medicine, industrial physical therapy. So I think it's good for our, you know, a lot of students and, and clinicians out there to know it's okay for your passions to change and, and evolve over time. Yeah, and don't be afraid. And that's that's the big thing because once you develop a competency and you become sort of the expert in that area or very confident in those skills, sometimes you're, you're hesitant to move into a different area because then you're the novice again. Okay, you still have the skill sets, but what you transfer from your knowledge and that expertise into that other area can be very amazing. Some of the best clinicians that I've seen have bounced from orthopedics to neuro. Uh, one of them I think of right now is uh, she was the director of a rehab facility and ended up into doing orthopedics and then went into skilled nursing facilities. And, right. and she is just outstanding. You couldn't, and traveling, she started traveling into different areas, but she's probably the most competent PT that I've ever met because she can actually has that versatility to work in any setting and is fearless in going into any setting and working with pediatrics to geriatrics. So, you know, it's great to develop that. Don't discount, you know, don't get honed into your own expertise too, too much. Don't be afraid to reach out and be the novice again once you get experience. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think just tagging off a little bit earlier, um, Caroline Lippick has a question. She left it in the comments. So she wants to know, what kind of experiences do you recommend for new DPTs who are just fresh out of school to gain while they're out in the field for those five or so years in the clinic? Mm -hmm. You know, exposure, exposure, exposure. <laughs> so you're going to be doing that <laughs> exposure to patients and getting out there because a lot of your problem solving and, and skill sets are going to come from looking at patients, working with patients. So that's very important. And that's why a lot of students are going into the mentoring relationships and residencies and those types of things. So when you do look at your first experiences, make sure they have a good cadre of individuals at those facilities that can mentor you if you have questions. Or if they're not at those facilities, like I'd mentioned before about my career, I ended up calling the universities again and said, hey, you know, I got this issue. How can you help me develop a rehab program? for industrial physical therapy. So use your resources. So the best thing is, is it the position that you're looking for? It's the people in the atmosphere that really drives your passion and drives your learning. Uh, and, I, you know, those are the challenging things. What I look for in new graduates is somebody that goes out and has that courage to go out and chase things that they want to learn, but also has that confidence in knowing, oh, well, I need a little bit more experience here, or I need a little bit more work here, and they go after that. 
to make themselves competent. So identify, be a good self-assessment of, of where your skill sets are and the things that you need to work on. And those things you need to work on, if you need help, get it. Because you will. I mean, there will be people out there that can assist you. And don't be afraid when you think somebody's the expert and it's like, oh, I should send all my patients to that person because they're, they're the expert in this area. No, you have to learn there too. So right. you treat those patients and get the experience from those individuals and bounce questions off of them when you need to so that you gain that experience also and you become the expert. I hope yeah. that kind of ties into what the, the question was and answers it for you. Absolutely. And I, like, like you said, you should definitely be mindful of your strengths, like definitely play to your strengths, you know, as a clinician um, in academia as well, but also be mindful of things that you have to work on, things that you need to improve upon. Because if you can improve upon those things, you're just going to make yourself better, you know, you know, lecturer, clinician, you know, whatever your path is. Um, I think that's definitely a good key thing to remember. Yeah. You know, Kyle, when we were talking about that, I think one of the things, and this might be a business perspective that others some of the other students may have heard, you heard a SWOT analysis and you probably heard of that in uh, recent thing in PT programs you hear about in your business. It's strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats. I always tell people to SWAT themselves. Okay. So you have to look at your own strengths, your own opportunities, your own weaknesses and threats to those both internal and external in your environment that you're working within and the things that you were bringing to the table, but also have that personal mission statement and keep driving towards that. So you work yourself like a business and moving yourself forward through your career, but don't be afraid to change and go into different areas that, uh, that you really want to develop. So you know, starting out, gain that experience, identify where those weaknesses are, make them strengths, and then go after that mission that you have in your career. And continually reassessing yourself, continually um, be performing those SWOT analysis from time to time in order to keep recognize things that are manifesting, things that are evolving. Because, um, again, we got to stay up to date on ourselves and, and the profession. So I think the best way to do that is just to continually reassess yourself. So I think that's awesome. Mm -hmm. So Scott says, uh, and forgive me, Scott, I really don't know how to pronounce your last name, so I don't want to butcher it. Uh, but he says, do you recommend being a clinical instructor? to get experience teaching and, be, and becoming an eventual teacher in the academic setting? I think it's great experience to be a, a clinical instructor. And I think that's something that you learn to teach individuals that are going through the program. And in doctoral programs, as you know, students are not just the doctoral programs, but even the PTA programs, you're bringing information to that clinician that's more cutting edge at times. So being a CI, and I think that's what you're asking about being a clinical instructor, is a role that I would say yes that is a great way to start to learn to educate individuals. Um, one of the first avenues that people get in is, is moving through those realms of taking students and then finding that passion for teaching students and moving then into academia. Uh, I think that you can also do the same thing in learning your leadership skills and, and others in how you work with your patients and how you get them involved. And can you lead them to adhere to what you're trying to do? with them and educate them on what they would need to do because we're not healing anybody. We're putting them in the best environment for healing and protecting them at times or pushing them when they're not pushing themselves is enough to actually get that optimal level of stress in their bodies to actually recover. So all the experience that you gain is worthwhile for becoming an academician. It's how you use it. So those skills that you have, if it's just been a clinician, that's great. If you start to teach students, that starts to hone your skills a little bit differently in that you may have to get more engaged with the literature than you do just as a clinician at times. Hopefully you're that clinician that does go up and look up 
research articles and find out what's going on with your patients if you have a question about them because that's where you need to be. And I think that's what DPT programs are really doing great at at this point is is students are, are very good at going out and finding what they need to find. Um, the biggest challenge is making sure it's not superficial learning and it's more that depth in how you're going to apply it to your certain patient population. But that's a different aside. But uh, being a CI, yes, there's um, even the APTA credentialing courses. I taught those for 15 years for the um, CI credentialing, both both the advanced and the uh, entry level, they call them level one and level two now, um, programs. They teach you how to teach. Now, Going back to the academic setting, a lot of times we don't have experience in how to teach when you come into academics. So how do you apply different pedagogies, different strategies in the classroom as well as in the labs and things like that to get to learning? You have the knowledge base for the content knowledge, but you have to develop that teaching skill too. So there's a lot of resources out there of learning how to teach, and that could even help you in clinical practice too. So if you're interested in academics, start looking into the active learning strategies and the pedagogies that you use, not just in large group settings, but in individual with students to actually build that skill set too. So it's a different realm in academics that you go into in learning how to teach. You can know what to teach because of your clinical experience, your knowledge base, but how to teach is a totally different ballgame. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so Sabrina wants to know, she wants to know, do you think doing a residency or obtaining a clinical specialization, so whether it's OCS, NCS, uh, puts you in the advantage in academia? It does. Um, one, it shows that you are a lifelong learner and you're actually out there chasing things to better yourself. Uh, is it necessary? Well, it depends on you and your skill sets that you're bringing to the table. Uh, I think in the past, even the, the OCS and the residencies, there still needs that maturity in the clinical setting to see patients. And I think going into residency right after your academic preparation is great and pushing that along and you learn that skill set a lot quicker, but you won't be an ex expert coming out of it. You'll be better on that path to becoming an ex expert, but that won't make you an expert nor does the OCS. If you're a great test taker, I've seen people go and pass that test very easily, but I wouldn't want to send patients to them. So there's those type of individuals out there that are really skilled in that, and it comes with the exposure and how you deal with your patients that there's a maturation and a developmental process of becoming that expert and being very in tune to what you're seeing with patients that um, comes with experience and exposure that you need to get to. So residency, either at the, when you first leave entry-level education and going into the residency is great to push you along that path a lot faster. Um, after getting a few years experience, if you have those opportunities to go back and do a residency, you may even get more from it because now you can bounce different questions off your mentors that may even challenge them a bit more because you've been exposed and you've gained some maturity in those realms. So it's all in what you are, what, how passionate and how quickly you want to move on your career path. But don't force yourself in those career paths either. You know, you have time. There's not, you know, there, there's always going to be those opportunities. The best thing is that you enjoy the now too, what you're into and you're enjoying your experience. Don't put that ahead of your learning at the moment. Absolutely. That's sense. great. That, yeah, that's definitely, that's awesome. Um, so we're about halfway through. So everyone, these are, we have some awesome questions rolling through. Um, so just keep them coming. Um, we're going to, we'll queue them right up for you. Um, I think this is a really awesome conversation that we've been having. So definitely keep posting those in the comments um, if you have any more questions. So Kate, well, Kate on the board, our SPT delegate, she wants to know, what is your own personal mission statement? Uh, 
you know, I've I've written it a number of different times, and mine is is pretty much giving back. So I'm at a point in my career that I want to be happy in what I do and I want to enjoy what I'm doing. I moved up through the academic ranks um, and the, the administrative ranks very quickly. So my personal mission statement is really in tune to how do I give to others and how much do I give back to others? Um, and with that, you know, where do I want to be in my career if I'm looking at that? And do I have a career objective in my personal mission? Not necessarily. I have an individual objective. How do I touch certain people to make them grow and to, to see that into the future that they, they really go out? And that's what I missed, actually, in being upper administration. I, I've enjoyed mentoring faculty and things of that sort, but then it started all administrative. Right. Getting back to this, I can actually be with people and, and see them grow. So my mission statement is before I get out of my career, I want to see people continue to grow and I want to see that impact that I've had on them more so than my own position or where I'm trying to head in my career. So I, I guess that's my personal mission statement is to, to give back as much as I've been given and more. That, I, think that, I think that's awesome. And it, it's kind of cool that you say, because I, I totally agree that you can have your own individual mission statement, your own personal mission statement, but that statement can actually carry over into your career. You know, you can use that, like, like you were saying, into your career. So you don't necessarily have to have a career mission statement, but I think more of an individual will kind of suffice because you'll take more of like your individualistic aspect, your individualized approach, and be able to fit that into your clinical practice or into your, you know, as an ac- academic specialist. Um, so I think that's, that's pretty, that's something that's definitely, you know, good to remember that just having your own individual mission statement, I think will suffice um, carrying you through your years as a, as a PT, as a PTA. Mm-hmm. Awesome. So, I definitely wanted to hit on this before. I know you mentioned it. Um, so could we talk a little bit about um, tutorial and problem-based learning and kind of the, the pro, not, not the pros and cons, but just like the differences between that and, the, and a regular lecture-based program and how that kind of fits as with academia as a PT or PTA career? Mm-hmm. You know, there are strengths in every program, no matter if you're traditional problem-based, if you use other strategies like team-based learning and some other pedagogical strategies. Um, really, it depends on what your affinity is. You're going to get entry-level skills, and you're going to get entry-level education. All programs through CAPTI are making sure that you get a generalist education and you're able to do what you need to do as a PT or PTA when you get out there. The difference is the amount of emphasis in different areas, and sometimes that's based on just the faculty. So you can have a traditional program that has a very strong orthopedic because of the faculty that they have there too, or someone that has a very strong cardiopulmonary or, um, you know, or, or neuro, whatever it may be. But what I see differently is in a problem-based program, and a lot of programs are going to case-based and different things of that sort, and we've got new ones out there that are more hybrid and they're all online and they're bringing people in. Um, there is a lot of teamwork-oriented exposure. So you're getting in and working in teams. You have to negotiate with others, and it's that person interaction that takes the personal interaction, and you're not afraid to present. So I think students that go through a problem-based curriculum are more confident in interdisciplinary interaction. They are able to go out and find information very quickly. Uh, and able to analyze that information pretty quickly, too, and the, the level and how good that information is. Um, so I think that's a, that's a plus in problem-based learning curriculum. Uh, you know, sometimes 
and this this is something that I've talked to our faculty here because we are a full problem based curriculum, and I've been the program director at traditional based programs too, right. and they do a great job and they get you the skills that you need but you do have a different product at the end. So the students are different. Yes, they're all entry-level clinicians, but they may have an affinity towards one area of PT or they may have strengths in different areas. And what we're looking at is that broad base of strengths. So when you bring somebody into a curriculum, you have to mature them through your whole curriculum. So by the end of it, they're well-rounded in all aspects. So if your program does that, problem-based or traditional-based will get you there. I think problem-based gets you there with a little bit more individual problem-solving and individual preparation that you need to do for tutorials. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think that's what I like about it is that decision-making pieces, but you can't let go of uh, the traditional-based to where you have to have certain amount of content knowledge to hang that on. So right. if you're not teaching the content knowledge in the beginning, you have nothing to work with to get you to the point, and it can get too much information out there so to uh, actually refine on a specific case and things of that sort. Right. Um, so and it's, there's a lot more moving parts in problem-based learning with the number of different faculty that you have and those types of things too. So, um, you know, without going into more depth, I think what I like the best about problem-based learning is it creates individuals that have a better ability to, to interact in interdisciplinary realms and a better ability to express themselves and speak because they're always doing that into tutorials and to find research and to bring it to the table and to bring right. information to the table. Traditional, what I like better is you may get a more solid linear progression like in Western medicine that they teach you this and this and this. So it's almost they're giving you the information as you're working through it and and building on that through different strategies to get to that learning. What I think nowadays with all programs in the internet, and this is going beyond your question a bit, Mm -hmm. but it's, I don't think a lot of times you get information so quickly, you don't get the depth. So the superficial reading, the superficial things that students do and finding information, you can bring it, you can find the answers if you have it in front of you, but sitting and reading a textbook or reading something to the depth, I don't, I think we're losing that skill somewhat of individuals sitting and reading a chapter and having that really gel with them because through reading it, you really get a better understanding instead of just getting the bits and pieces to learn to, to apply right now. Mm-hmm. You need that depth. And I think even if you go into residency, that's one of my recommendations is start reading your textbooks. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> instead of just finding the that. answers, start reading the textbooks, start reading other literature that really gets you there that you can actually sit there and read a whole chapter right. you know, instead of just finding the piece that you're looking for. There you go. Advice just as simple as just, you know, continually reading your textbooks and really honing in on that information. So I think that's, that's an awesome point. Uh, could you just briefly um, talk about, cause I don't know if this is, if this is a little, I don't know if this is clear enough for everyone. Could you just briefly go into the structure of problem-based learning and just structurally how it's different than a regular lecture-based uh, learning curriculum? Um, problem-based learning has, all the courses are tied to a case. So each course and in, in what we do here at Sacred Heart, so we have structure and function that's giving you the sort of the basic anatomy or physiology components to it. Then we have an exam course, and then we have an interventions course. So all those courses are, are talking about the same type of, um, say, if it's musculoskeletal, you're on the knee. All the different courses are talking about those, and there's a specific case that comes to large group discussions that um, – if the students are not getting the parts and pieces, then the large group helps fill those in because the students can ask questions and there's more of a 
uh, in the earlier years was more of a traditional lecture type of format that you're being presented material in those large groups that everybody gets around. The difference comes in the tutorials. And the tutorials are where students are actually working through that case and breaking it down. First, they, they divvy up the, the responsibilities of what things they want to address with a patient case that's, that's vague enough that they would have to look in all different realms to try to build on that case, but it's also specific enough that we know that we're hitting all the content areas that we need to hit for CAPTI requirements and the learning that we want to take place at that point in time in the curriculum. So that basis on what is need to know in the case comes through those different exam and function and intervention courses to actually tie to that case and the students are breaking that down and then going in and presenting it with a group of students that are around seven to ten students typically around the seven mark that uh, you look for in a tutorial setting and those students are working together on a weekly basis in long periods of time of gathering that information and you gradually progress through the curriculum in that way that you're building content by making the cases more difficult or more complex and bringing more information to it so that you hit every component of what's needed in the CAPTI requirements and what's needed for entry-level practice and skills. Does that Absolutely. kind of get to it? Okay. Absolutely. And like <laughs> even – My other faculty would say, oh, you should have said this or said that. So, <laughs> no, that's perfect. No, that, 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 hits, that hits pretty much everything. And even more, like the large group, so the term a large group discussion and lecture, they're, they're not really synonymous in a problem-based learning um, – in, in a, in a lecture-based learning curriculum – so, for example, a large group discussion, usually the, the professor doesn't come in and just start lecturing off a of PowerPoint. They usually start classes asking questions, and they, they, they facilitate and they conduct their classes um, through students asking questions. So student, students need to be prepared with the, with the material from the, the case that they did prior in order for the class to be successful. So I think that's kind of how it's different than a, than a, than a lecture-based program when the professor lectures based off of a PowerPoint and just kind of goes right off the PowerPoint and then the class concludes. So I think that's kind of different, just providing our viewers more of a scope. But if you're, if you were like a, a professor who was going into a problem-based curriculum, you'd be starting your classes with questions and be, and your whole class would be structured around questions rather than, rather than a PowerPoint that's going to be giving all the information. Mm -hmm. Awesome. You know, when I mentioned about tutorial leaders also, so when you're in the tutorials, you have a clinician typically or even a faculty member that sits in those groups of seven in the tutorials when the students are breaking down and developing the next case um, or presenting the cases. And that tutorial leader is actually a facilitator, making sure that they hit certain components that they need to during that time and bringing up certain different things around that case that the students may have gotten into to clarify some information. But then that comes back to, again, as you had said, to that large group to fill in the full class and to actually broaden the, the knowledge or get into more depth in certain areas that may not have been hit as well in the tutorial groups. Absolutely. Awesome. So I think that, I think that was awesome. Really good, um, good way to kind of incorporate problem-based learning and also lecture-based learning. I think it was, it was good to hit those um, two areas of academics. So I think that was great. I also wanted to talk a little bit about um, PT PTA relationships in the in the academic setting. So, in what ways does a doctor physical therapy curriculum fit in education about a physical therapist assistant scope of practice? And so, well, how does that fit in, and how does this help facilitate a better PT and PTA team? Mm -hmm. You know, one of the things, as, as you find out, is that everybody brings things to the table. So when you're talking about patients, a lot of sometimes the PTA may have even more information about the patient because they've been working with them more. So I think um, one of the things in problem-based learning, when we talked about the individuals working together, 
you start to to get that interdisciplinary perspective, but this is within the discipline and the, the roles that you have, you learn how to lead and you learn how to follow. If somebody has information, you really have to work with being at a PTA or somebody in another discipline, you need to be able to incorporate that because of your care of the patient. Um, you know, typically we do have things that we look at even in their CPIs. Everybody knows the clinical performance instruments. So, you know, do you have the chance to supervise physical therapist assistants and learn about their profession more in, in supervising those individuals? Um, in your professional courses, you'll hear about the different responsibilities and things that you can delegate and you can't delegate to um, physical therapist assistants. Uh, a lot of times when you do get out, not just in the clinics, but if you have these integrated clinical experiences and you have PTAs, it's always a great thing to have a PTA school nearby that you can actually tag onto and put PTs and PTAs in the same class or in the same, same um, ICE experiences, integrated clinical experiences so that you can work together and start to get into that relationship and see what the knowledge bases are. So a lot of what we're doing is is in that interaction in the academic settings and DPT programs is working with individuals so that they will know how to supervise, but understanding what their the scope of practice is for the different disciplines. Um, you know, and that's that's the other thing that we talk about. It's uh, you know, you see that even before between different degree levels because we have bachelor and master's and doctoral degree <laughs> PTs out there. And you right. you know, if you have a doctor, it doesn't mean that you're a more experienced or a better PT than somebody that has a bachelor's degree. Okay. So when you look at those types of things and you, you need to value the individual and what they're bringing to the table and you know that that PTA is not just an extender, they're bringing a knowledge base that they work with those patients. And I've seen some very good individuals in different disciplines, including PTA that I would want my patients working with because they they really have an outstanding knowledge base in, in rehabilitation or exercise or gait or no matter what that is. Um, I'd rather them work with those individuals than some of my colleagues that I have as PTs. So you look at the skill sets, you develop that, you hopefully the programs are getting into showing you the differences in what those the scope of practices between the different disciplines, but that interdis as an academician, you should be always encouraging that that you utilize the resources because your main interest is that patient. It's not right. disciplines that you're working with. It's what do you do for that patient to get that patient better and what disciplines or individuals have the best knowledge base the, or the time commitment and things like that, that they can work with that individual, get them to where they need to be. So that's what we're, we're hopefully teaching. Awesome. Uh, that's great. That's awesome. And this even links up with this. So why is it important for, DPT students and also PTA students to be involved in the profession and also just academics in general? Yeah. Um, you know, the profession pieces, again, profession and the academics are ones that are driving the direction of the profession. And you can go into all the political realms. You can go into all the reimbursement realms and say, okay, right. if we don't have a voice, we're not out there. We're going to right. lose parts and pieces of our profession. And that's sort of the professionalism piece. But those are the resources for you. The academic programs have to stay up on the current knowledge to be able to be in contemporary practice. So those are the a resource that keeps you active and engaged with where the level of knowledge is at the time. But they should also be at that cutting edge to push that knowledge forward because you have researchers at institutions that are searching and, and trying to find new truths about what we do in practice. So the academic settings are out there. Then you have the APTA 
who's out there to help our profession and move that profession forward and do the political aspects about it. Because the first thing you do in a state when there's a challenge to your to your um, practice acts or whatever it may be in your state, they look at the national organization. What does is it like across the country? What do we do? And with the House of Delegates that's coming up right before next conference, there are decisions about our practice being made that moves a profession forward or backward in what we're doing in those aspects of it. And if you staying on board with that and staying on top of that requires you to be pretty much an APTA member to get into those member only sites to understand what's <laughs> going on and to learn those types of things. Um, in the past, there's always that, okay, what does the APTA really give for me? You know, what, what do I get from being a member and is it worth it sort of things? That was the past. Right now, there's so much information on there that if you're just looking for something in your own discipline or the re research or orientation, if you're, you're looking for something, there are a lot of things on there that you can find information. And the, one of the best things is the networking piece. Right. So connecting with people, as I talked to you about mentors earlier, and I told you about getting in connection with people. If you're in your national organization and you start going to conferences, you your opportunities widen exponentially with the networking that you do and the people that you meet and the expertise that you see that's out there. And you say, oh, I want to be like them or, oh, I want to learn that from them. And don't be afraid to go up to them and say, hey, I'm so and so and I really want to know what you do. You know, start talking to people, create those networks. So that's what the APTA does for you also in that in the organizational realm and the academic. Good too. Absolutely. That's a good little plug there for the APTA. Uh, we're just so blessed kind of as a profession as a whole to have all that information just so readily accessible for all of its members. It's all on the website, like like Chris was saying, not just limiting to networking, but also just other information about House of Delegates, different motions that are going to be talked about at House of Delegates. That's all in there. It's it, It's all in the... I forget it's called. I think it's called the hub. The hub. I think all the information's in there. Um, any anything that you find passionate about in physical therapy, it's all going to be located on the the APTA website. So, um, good little plug there to you know as a little perk to have. So I think that's great. Um, so Lise just left a, a question in the comments. She says, "Do you find missing working with patients in a clinical setting with your career heavily focused in academia?" And do you, as a follow up to that, do you find ways to work with patients still? You know, I dabble, <laughs> and it's, it's, here's the thing, I, I work with individuals, I'm not in the clinics as much, but again, the more you get into administrative realms, the more it takes you away from the direct patient care, and what I do is work with students more, but I do have the benefit of having a wife that is starting a partnership and getting into private, she's, she's actually been in practice for quite a while, and she's an expert in different areas, so um, I guess as I live vicariously through my children. I'm living vicariously through my wife in the PT realm and treating patients because she brings home and we talk about different things that she's seeing in the clinic with the no disclosure of patients. There's a confidentiality issue, but we mm -hmm. kind of work through different things too that's coming aboard. It, it satisfies me a bit to actually know that I still have that connection in that way. Um, I do feel that it's important again for faculty members to have that connection to bring that back and that's why we all the institutions that I've worked at, you do have an eight-hour day that you can per week that you can be in the clinics to actually hone those skills. So that's given in the contracts that you have time as an academician to be in the clinics to continue to hone those skills. And typically, the and that's something that we didn't talk about. Most contracts for academicians are nine-month contracts. So the rest of the time, 
the, the next three months is usually it was given for doing research um, in higher education, but a lot of our clinicians or our clinical faculty typically work in the clinics during that time more intensely. So they go back in the clinics during the summer and they, it's extra pay for one, right. because, you know, you're, you get your contract in university, but then you're working outside of the university with these clinics, but it does hone your skills. And the more contact these individuals have the clinic, the more patients they bring back to the classroom too. And that's one of the nice things is having as much exposure to patients in the classroom labs that you can of these different things that you see instead of just working with your own partners that are normal PT, normal healthy individuals in your PT class. So um, bringing those individuals in are great. Um, I guess back to the question, no, I don't practice as much as, you know, do I miss it? Yes, I do. But I was in the steel mills too. And sometimes, you know, it gets a little testing in there with the workers' comp issues and things of that sort. So there's some things I don't miss about that. Every role that I've been in, there are things that I missed and things that I loved. And the things that I loved is that seeing those patients grow and seeing that the contributions that you make in the clinics. And I do miss that. Um, right. You know, I don't miss the paperwork. I don't miss the reimbursement <laughs> issues, those types of things that you all are dealing with and the clinicians are dealing with. Mm -hmm. But that's what I said. Even in higher education and upper management, when I was an associate provost, there's things there that I miss. Right. But I'm back to where I love because I can see that growth in individuals and the faculty and others, too. So um, short answer, yes, I miss the patients. But I get my energy from seeing the students thriving and seeing the faculty growing. So Awesome. That's great. So I think, I think we have time for one more question, and then we'll start wrapping it up a little bit. So I think this is a really good fitting last question. So what is the one thing, if you could pick one thing, What's the one thing that you enjoy most about your job? Oh, you know, without reiterating, seeing individuals growth. Um, right. I think, and this is both on the student and faculty level. When somebody comes back and says, thank you, or you've done this for me. And it's, it could be years that that can, as a faculty member, getting that appreciation and seeing that you are a part of that person's growth is the highlight of my days. So those are the things, you know, th that reinforcement and seeing that you've made that impact is what I love most about my job. And you see awesome. that every once in a while, you see it sometimes weekly, you know, sometimes it's a long stretch where, you know, it's, it's, every job gets mundane at times. And it's, it's really a lot of things that uh, you need to do in the job, but those times when you get those one things that really makes you feel like, yes, this is why I'm here and this is why I do it, that's it for me. Somebody coming back and saying thank you. Awesome. So. Yep, there it is, everyone. There you go. Awesome. So, so Chris, thank you so much um, for taking the time uh, tonight and this Memorial Day weekend um, for joining us. So could you please share your email address for any of our audience members if they have any questions that could follow up with you? Absolutely. It's Petrosino C. So it's P-E-T-R-O-S-I-N-O-C at sacredheart.edu. Sacred Heart is spelled out. S-A-C-R-E-D-H-A-R-T dot E-D-U. So Petrosino C at sacredheart.edu. I'm willing to take any questions that you have. So shoot me an email. Let me know. 
Awesome. Great, great. So yeah, thanks. So thank you everyone for, for jumping on tonight. So we would love if you're on Twitter, um, interacting on Twitter or in the comments, whatever you really prefer, if you could kind of just write down or note down what, what you really learned from tonight's chat. So like as this exchange chat on academics, PT career, I am going to blank. Um, you can do that on Twitter or on Facebook, as I said. And if, like I said, we can continue this conversation on Twitter or on Facebook. So if you need any more information on that, use the hashtag exchange essay um, hashtag, and then we'll, we'll definitely keep the conversation going on, on Twitter. And again, just, uh, just uh, plugging this again. So market calendars for the next um, hashtag exchange essay chat, Sunday, June 9th at 7 p.m. Eastern time, Jimmy McKay, um, as I said before, creator of PT Pinecast. We're going to talk about building a professional brand. So that'll just be right before APTA next and House of Delegates um, to kick it off in fashion. So uh, we're really excited for that. So, Chris, thank you so much for joining us, and uh, thank you so much for everyone tuning in tonight. Thank you for having me. Awesome. Have a good night, everyone.